think that I'm really, you know, parroting the words of others, but um, the pandemic has exacerbated so many inequalities and inequities in our education system and in our society in general, too. But I mean, um, I have five kids in daycare, doing classroom daycare. I have um, one child who was recently placed in a home, but before that he was homeless for six months. And um, it's really just heightened those things because school can be such a secure haven for kids. Like it's such a safe place. And I, I think that's the hope, right? And I think that's kind of why you're doing your project. Like, what is the potential of school to equalize and to provide this opportunity for kids to just be safe and happy and free from so many of those external stresses, but now they're never leaving those stresses. They are always in those situations. My name is Kira, and welcome back to my podcast. The other day, I spoke to Charlotte Scharfenberg, a charter school teacher in New York City. She's a first-year kindergarten teacher who has really spent the majority of her time teaching, actually all of her time teaching, on Zoom. Throughout this episode, I was so surprised to learn about the charter school movement and how prominent they are in certain places, such as New York. And for any parent or student listening, just take time, as Charlotte describes the charter school, to reflect on your experience if you went to a regular public school and how it differs. In this episode, we spoke about Charlotte's experience, and of course, we talked about where the education system is headed and where she thinks it needs to go. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Charlotte Scharfenberg. Hi, Kira. How are you doing? Thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm really excited. Thank you. I'm super excited as well. Can you explain uh, the difference between a charter school and just a public school? Absolutely. So both, I'm going to say traditional public school and then charter. So traditional public schools and charters are both public, meaning that um, they have to follow the same Standards, they um, are getting funding from the government and from the state, but what's different about them is that charter schools are publicly funded and privately managed, whereas public schools are both publicly funded and publicly managed. So how I like to think of it is that charter schools are given more freedom in terms of how they teach. Not so much what they teach because the state tests are going to be the same for both public schools and for traditional public schools and charters, but how they're teaching the material as well as how they're hiring, how they're setting up their school day, how they're setting up um, the kinds of specials classes. Like my school does chess and art and music and dance um, and soccer, um, all of those things are up to the specific charter's discretion. But in exchange for all that freedom, charter schools 
are accountable to their like charter, which is the, the contract document that makes them a school to then get certain test scores. And if they are not achieving on a certain level, then they can't renew their charter and they won't be able to continue to exist. So with like, there's a lot more liberty in what charters can do and how they do it. But mm -hmm. at the same time, there's a lot higher standard for how kids need to be performing. Whereas in public schools, like they know that they'll be able to continue and um, they're not having to, I mean, of course, they're working hard to make sure their kids do well, but it's not the same um, gravity because if they aren't getting certain test scores, that's not what their uh, status as a school is contingent upon. When you said that the funding has to do with uh, student outcomes, do your kindergarten students have to take standardized tests? or are they measured in any certain way or not yet? Yes, um, there are a lot of assessments at my school. And so my kindergartners have taken internal assessments, meaning that so success uh, is a network of schools. There are I think 47, so it's like 35 elementary school and then in the teens of uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> middle schools and one high school. And um, the network then has assessments throughout the year for kids to see how they're doing. So we're actually in the midst of a math assessment right now. And we have their reading test at the end of next week. And then at the end of the year, yes, they will take the NYS uh, New York State test as well. Is that stressful for you as a teacher to have your kids perform a certain way? Definitely, a, a thousand percent. I think the culture is definitely competitive and it, it is, there is a heavy focus on test scores and how kids are doing. And I think in some ways it's really motivating, uh, both for families and for kids and for teachers. I think that um, ensuring that this learning is being done and ensuring that kids are where they need to be and are, are going to be exceptional going into first grade, are going to be competent uh, to do all the skills that are going to come ahead, that they have this really strong foundation. Like the tests are truly made to measure just that. And for my little ones, I test each of them individually. So it's it's not like they're sitting down and, you know, all taking this, test together like they're just one-on-one -on -one with me and I like read them out the math problem where I you know I, I read a book with them and listen to them read so it's not I, I once they'll they're more competent in reading um they will start to take tests like how you and I imagine them but for now it is a little bit more relaxed but I, I also think my kids so New York is one of the only states that lets four-year-olds going to kindergarten so the majority of my class came in at four years old and since then everybody has turned five but I I have a class of 35 kids and two kids have turned six and the rest are still five so they're really really young and mm -hmm. I think that 
you know, prioritizing time for testing when they're this little is not always for the betterment of the kids. And I, I also think that putting such emphasis on kids' data, kids, you know, percentages correct on tests is um, taking away sometimes from, you know, focusing on doing everything we can to get the kids the learning that they need. When the students take these tests and then the tests are evaluated, who are they compared to? Is it just in that region, like you said? And then, for instance, if your school did very poorly that year, how, who would they measure that against? So all of the internal assessments are measured against all of the other schools in the network. Um, so I know not only my, then this is like, this is a really crazy point. I know not only my school's ranking and like how kindergarten at Washington Heights did compared to the other 35 middle schools. I also know me as a teacher, how I did in comparison to every other teacher teaching kindergarten in the network and they rank it and they send it out. So that's happening between the schools in the network, but larger um, context, this data does go towards their proficiency in both math and reading and phonics as kindergartners, which can be compared with data at traditional public schools. Okay. So, like, they can say, you know, at my school right now, for example, 97% of the kindergartners are proficient or exceeding expectations, or sorry, meeting or exceeding expectations for phonics, which is amazing, like especially during virtual learning, whereas I don't actually have the corresponding figure for public schools right now, but that would be a data point that public mm -hmm. schools have as well. Mm -hmm. Let's say for that 3% who did not uh, meet proficiency level, are there tools implemented in the classroom to help them yeah. they're just left on their own but okay what are those tools okay so all of my kids who need extra support have scheduled one-on-one -on -one interventions with me every week and my kids that need more support than that are scheduled up to five times a week with me so some of my kids meet me twice a day most days and then like have Fridays off um for a one-on-one -on -one session to review exactly what they've been struggling with, to go over concepts, to practice problems. I also um, am in pretty much constant communication with parents. And so parents are doing a lot of work and practice with their kids at home, and that is something that my charter network is really um, – contingent upon is how much parents are willing to put in in terms of effort for their kid. And so there's that part and I send, I mean, I send videos of myself teaching. I um, do interventions there are also like I make practice packets, all that kind of stuff. But of course for kids that do require support um, outside of that, we have a special education team and um, we have a process for 
not only kind of an internal way of um, supporting the kid through it's called response to intervention measures, exactly what a kid is struggling with. You work on it a certain number of times each week and then have them take kind of a mini quiz about it and see, like, how a child is progressing or not, just focusing on this one scale. Mm-hmm. And then with that, you can, if they are really progressing, then, you know, you just keep changing their goal. Um, if they're not really progressing, then they can be referred for an IP, which an individualized education um, plan. And that, I, I do have a number of kids with IPs, and um, it is like pretty normal for younger kids to start getting referred once they're in kindergarten and first. Mm-hmm. You said that the charter schools uh, really focus on um, having the parents be involved, and that made me wonder, for charter schools, how do people decide they want to send their kid to a charter school? Is it just that's the school in their community? or So the first thing is that New York City public schools, like, largely are failing kids. Um, less than 10% of kids in New York City public schools are reading above or at grade level, which is literally I, – I just don't even know how to comprehend a number like that because – I don't know, I was thinking, like, my friend group in high school was 10 of us. What if only one of us knew how to read? Like, yeah, at the level we were supposed to, that, that makes no sense to me. And um, a smaller percentage of that are doing math at grade level. And so, in general, I, and of course, there are some amazing public schools in New York, and they're, actually, the public school in Washington Heights is pretty darn strong, Um and there are some amazing teachers in public schools making them better places. Um, but in general, a lot of parents aren't willing to take that risk, like that mm-hmm. their kid is not going to be the 10% and know how to read and come out prepared to go to college or prepared to take on a job or prepared to tackle whatever is next in their life. And so success has a lottery for its schools. Um, charters cannot pick or, you know, have any sort of admissions test for um, their kids. That's part of being a public school is you have to accept kids randomly. So for any school of success that is oversubscribed to, meaning there's more kids that want to go than there are spots, it's just a lottery. And mm-hmm. um, the numbers are drawn. And last year they had... 35,000 applications and only 17,000 spots. Wow. So, like, less than half of kids are getting to go whose families wanted them to. Um, but in general, it's, it's, it's really just parents. It's parents saying, like, that I don't want to risk my child going to that school. And um, there are successes and there are other charters in a lot of parts of the city, I mean, truly everywhere in the city and in all the boroughs except for Staten Island. I really don't think Staten Island has much in terms of charter schools, but um, they'll find one that, like, they trust and that they think would really benefit their child and then go from there. Mm -hmm. 
And does this result in having a pretty diverse socioeconomic um, classroom, or are most no. kids coming to these charts now? So, okay, it depends. So for my kids, um, my school is based in Washington Heights, and for um, you or anybody in Southern California, that is the tippy-tippy top of Manhattan. So if you think of Central Park as going from – Midtown, which is like 39th Street, all the way up to the top of the park, which is 110, like where you're hitting Harlem. My school is at 190th, so it is like the very, very top of Manhattan. And that area is, in general, um, lower socioeconomic status and a majority Hispanic and Latinx. Mm-hmm. So, my school, um, I think about 93% of my kids are eligible for free reduced price lunch, which is a pretty good standard of um, socioeconomic status. But, for example, my friend, um, Abby, works in Cobble Hill. And Cobble Hill is a kind of neighborhood with greater diversity in terms of there are many different families and many different people there and she has you know a much I would say in general much higher socioeconomic status as her mm-hmm. cost average than mine would so it does really depend on the school but my specific school has very low socioeconomic status how has that played a role into your teaching? And are there any language barriers with these kids since you did say they're uh, Latinx and um, Hispanic? I have a few that only speak Spanish. Luckily, I do speak Spanish, so I'm able to talk with them. Um, and all my kids actually speak incredible English. I have a couple that are um, – not as confident in their English, but are getting really strong. I think it's super interesting teaching them phonics. I think I think this would be like the crazy part about language development is having them start to recognize in English all the letters and sounds and then have them now try to grapple with it in Spanish, like listening to their parents mm-hmm. um, or have their parents grapple with it trying to help their kid. Um, I feel like I've done that so much on the phone, like – uh, all the different sounds for the letters or video, like a <laughs> FaceTime with their parents, like, okay, this is the sound, like, this is that word. And, um, but, I mean, they're incredible. And the the language is, it's not, it's really not an issue. It's actually, like, such a cool, amazing thing. And, like, thinking about all these kids being bilingual is so exciting. I I don't know. I think it's awesome. Yeah. It's a it's a strength and going to yeah. be work in their favor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um and to finish off this conversation, what do you think if you could choose one thing, let's say in the New York education system, uh what would you change and where do you see it going? And what is the biggest thing you would like people to focus on okay that was like a six-part question there Sarah. 
<laughs> I am going to try to tackle that, but uh, stop me if I get off track. I think the biggest thing that I would change is school funding. I don't think that many schools are given the opportunity to thrive, and therefore their kids really cannot flourish in the way that I know that they can. And I think oftentimes education and the social sciences in general do not, or not, sorry, not the social sciences, education and educational programs, especially federally run programs, are not backed by research and by data. And um, I learned, this was like, my mind-blowing fact of college is I took this class and we learned that less than 20% of federally funded educational programs have positive data backing them up, meaning that their impact on kids was not only real, but it was positive. And that the other 80% of programs had either a negligible or negative effect on kids, and yet we fund them all still the same. And so I think I would really change how we're doing funding, not only in terms of which programs we're funding and why, but also the resources that we're going to give to schools. Because a school in, um, I'll, I'll just use even my school, a school in Washington Heights is going to need different resources than a school in Cobble Hill, where parents are coming from more means and where the situation is different. And so even if we know that the potential of both of those kids is the same, their funding needs to be differentiated. And right now, as I'm sure you've found, so much of funding is tied to property taxes. And so it is really dependent upon where you live. Um, that would be number one. And I think with that, uh, just a really, really big push for emotional health with kids. Like I, I, there's not enough school counselors. There's not enough school psychologists. There's not enough um, curriculum um, along learning about feelings and learning about how to express yourself and learning how to be respectful and deal with conflict and be resilient. And I think those skills, those soft skills are so, so important and honestly are huge in making the world a better place and making a, a classroom a better place, making a friendship a better friendship. And so I think, yeah, my big thing would be funding. And my second one, which is also really big, would be mental health and um, emotional health resources. Thanks for having me, Kira. It was really fun to talk.